Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 12th, 2017. It's a Tuesday. This is episode 2083 of the Survival Podcast. And I have got a really, 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 really freaking great show for you today. One that I'm excited about because we're going to talk about like You know, of all my passions, one of my biggest, I guess, secondary passions, other than the core mission of this show and permaculture and self and all that, it's cooking. Cooking. And it, we're heading into deer season. We're also heading into many small game seasons and many other uh, opportunities to go out there and take something that's running around on four feet, uh, or maybe it's feathered, put a bullet or an arrow in it and bring it home and put it in your belly, right? And I think a lot of people get a little bit intimidated with cooking wild game. I've tried to bring some new stuff today's show compared to some of the stuff I've done about wild game before. I've tried to keep the recipes or the things. They're almost not even recipes. They're just things you can do dramatically simple so that they're not complex. They're not something you need to cook with for. So it's not something you got to fuss over. I'm not going to do a lot with sauces and seasonings and marinades and stuff like that today because the reality is good meat is its own flavor, okay? Especially when we're getting it from uh, the wilds. We'll be talking about that in just a bit and how we can prepare that meat in just a bit. But right now, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Totally by coincidence, if you really want to know how to cook great, go to a great chef. And sponsor of the day number one today is Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. He's got an amazing podcast, an amazing website, amazing seasonings, and now he's got amazing courses that teach you how to be a great cook right in your own home, like the Food Storage Feast and his Paleo Beef Course. Check him out. You can find about all, out about all that and more at his website at harvesteating.com. Next up, you know, when I first started doing this show, I sent a lot of business to a company called Rain Tree Nursery for trees and bushes and shrubs and vines. And I would occasionally order stuff from them myself, and I would get like a little handwritten note on an invoice that said, thanks for all the referrals, Jack. But when I had a problem with an order, do you believe this? They didn't usually do much to fix it. And I, re I got out in touch with them like, oh, a good dozen times. Hey, would you be interested in doing something for my audience? And I didn't get a no. I got a non-response. One day, I guess it was about five years ago now, I was looking around for another nursery, and I found a place called Bobwell's Nursery. And it turned out they were right here in Texas. And I just started buying some stuff from them. I didn't really reach out to them at first, and I bought a few things, and I was impressed with it. So then I started mentioning them on the air. And I called them up. I don't think I've ever told the story. I would call them up one day, and I'm like, I'm trying to order, like, $2,000 worth of stuff from you guys. It's all in my cart. I just spent an hour picking everything out, and it won't let me check out. And the one guy I hear yell to Bob, it's Jack Spierko, and he's got over $2,000 worth of shit in his cart, and he can't check out. And I hear Bob go, oh, crap. And he come around, and they said basically do a cut and paste and send it to us, and we'll send you an invoice. We'll take care of it. And so that was a pretty good intro. And so once I went out there to pick I went to pick that order up. It was just too much stuff. I said, hey, would you guys want to do a discount for my audience? They said, hell yeah. I said, you guys like to be a sponsor of the show? They're like, hell yeah. 
So that's the number one place I deal with with bushes, trees, shrubs, vines, unusual edibles now because they actually appreciated this community and the fact this community was doing business with them already. They didn't take us for granted. So the next time you're looking to order some stuff for that backyard or for your, you know, your 40 acres or four acres or four tenths of an acre, whatever it is, check out BobWellsNursery.com first. And, uh, and remember, if you are an MSB member, they do give you a discount. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history for the episode. We are up to the year 56. Uh, we covered 56 yesterday in regards to Roman baths. We're going to cover the other segment of 56 today from Southpaw Ben. War with Rome over Armenia. This year, the saga of Tridates I continues with the Roman invasion of Armenia. The sparks will spark, the, the, the sparks will spark a war between the Parthian Empire and Rome. This year, the Roman governor of Cappadocia and Galatia Corbulo, alongside with the governor of Syria, Umitis called the, the, the governor of Syria, talks with Volgasus to postpone and prevent this war, which he agrees to as, a, as it allows him to put his full attention toward crushing his son's revolt. Corbulo uh, uses this lull to get new troops up to snuff as they had lost some of their discipline and combat readiness by working in the peaceful and rich eastern garrisons. Corbulo also used this time to get them accustomed to the winners in the Antolian Plateau to keep their morale up during this hardening-off period. He was often seen among his troops and shared in their hardships. My take by South Alben. Throughout Roman history, many Roman generals and politicians will use diplomacy as a very effective weapon. They will use it to delay while they prepare their troops for battle, as we see here, and to cause and encourage rebellion and infighting and make Roman conquest easier and more effective. Today, many people see diplomacy as a sign of weakness and useful only for giving concessions and compare it to Chamberlain appeasing the Nazis uh, to his and his own country's detriment. They no longer value or respect how powerful a weapon it can be. Indeed, diplomacy should always be our first course. It should always be our first course. And that can be to the end of you know, delaying the inevitable if conflict is inevitable. But if conflict can be avoided, it should be. And I think that we've, you know, by getting to a point where like only the weak are diplomatic in, in the minds of many people, man, we, we've just lost our way as human beings. I think if, if you have a taste for war as an American citizen, I would challenge you to do two things. First would be to go back through history and look at from the day this nation was completely and fully independent at the end of the Revolutionary War up till today, how many years were there? And of those years, how many years were we at war with or bombing somebody? Or in some way using military intervention on somebody else's soil? And just let it sink in. I'm not going to give you the numbers. I want you to actually do that for yourself and find out what it is. Because I think if you find out for yourself what that number is, it'll have a bigger impact than if I just tell you. Because no matter what you think it is, it's bigger. The next thing I would say is, we have had almost no war on our soil. And we have certainly not had true, full, you can say 9-11, but I mean full-on combat on our soil in any real meaningful way since the American Civil War ended in 1865. That's how long it's been. What does that mean? It means no living American has ever watched their city or town destroyed and reduced to rubble in the middle of a war. And then go back and look at that first list. And think about the fact that somebody dealt with that, some in large numbers, some in small numbers, in every one of those years on your list. 
And ask yourself if that had happened here, if your taste for war would be as great as it is, and might your taste for diplomacy be a little bit higher. Those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. Those who don't study history are also doomed to suffer when others who don't care about history actually do repeat it. I said this long ago, but I'll say it again right now. We do not study history so that we will not re repeat the mistakes of the past. Because those of us studying history, generally, we don't get to make the decisions. Somebody else makes those decisions. And when we look at the mistakes of the past, what you can bet is sooner or later some dumbass somewhere in power is going to make those same mistakes. And we need to be prepared to deal with them when they come. Oh, with that, if you like the show and the work that I do, please do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you can support this show for as little as 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and active duty, and, uh, and, and uh, prior service, all retired, all of it. You all do qualify for a discount. Email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. And uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll get you that discount code. Everybody else, sign up at full price. But again, it comes out to less than it comes out to less than twenty cents an episode to support the work that we do and get all the great discounts and all the great content that goes with being an MSB member. All right, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, which again is cooking, and I've, I've titled it "Cooking Venison and Other Fish and Game." And I think it's the right title because we're going to focus more on venison than anything else. Because I think it's the one that gives people the biggest problem because it's so different in people's mind even though it really is like lean beef in a, in a lot of ways um the reason again that i wanted to do this show is one i've been doing a lot of cooking lately i i'm going hunting um in october and the place i'm going is down in kerrville and 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 they are just lousy with deer uh they have so many deer that they get these conservation permits for culling excess does And so when I go down there, I, I, I'm going to be down there for three days. I can shoot two deer. I probably will shoot two deer. And I won't even have to use my main license tags on them. I'll be able to keep those if I get other opportunities this year to hunt. That means I'm going to be coming home with quite a bit of meat. And that means right now I've been going through the freezer, digging through it, and, and trying to get rid of all the meat from last year. Because as much as I love deer meat, a lot of times I don't cook with it. Because if I cook with deer meat, my freaking wife's pain in the ass. I have to cook two different things because she won't eat it. She won't even try it, which drives me crazy. So my, my, my starting out thing here is if you're a person that's never tried deer meat, please try it in one of the ways that I'm going to give you today. If you are a person that's had deer meat and you said you didn't like it, assuming you like most meats, assuming you like steak, assuming you like you know veal, assuming you like basically mostly red meats, then... Please try one of these methods as well. I, I try to get across to my wife. She's like, I ate it years ago when my ex-husband made it, and I didn't like it. And when she tells me what it tastes like, I'm like, of course you didn't. It was ruined. Because it was, you know, broke the number one rule of cooking venison that we'll talk about in a minute. But if you overcook venison, it tastes like liver and bad liver at that. Because it's so freaking lean. So I, I really have a hard, I don't have a hard time with someone saying, I don't like deer meat. If I said, well, do you like steak? And they're like, no, I don't like steak either. I'm not a red meat person. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Well, if you're going to tell me you eat meat like 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 deer, uh, beef and lamb, but you don't like venison, all I can say is you either have a mental disruption that's making you judge something on your mind versus your mouth, or whoever cooked it for you should not be allowed to touch a beautiful piece of meat like venison because they do not know what they're doing. Before we get into all that, though, 
I want to talk about part of why I love cooking from a different, I don't think I've ever explained it this way before, and I think maybe it'll help you guys understand it's, it's not just a life skill and a survival skill that it is, and it's not just a, you know, an incredible life skill that we're losing in America. There's more to it than that. Cooking is a blend of four major things to me, and I generally don't hear people point this out. One is it's a blending of culture and heritage. And if you want to understand a people, when you go to their, their country or their, you know, their region or whatever, eat their food. And, and that doesn't mean like, you know, go to a restaurant that serves their food. You can learn some things for that, you know, but just like you order off the menu and it's some chefs, you know, take on whatever and you just eat it. And it's, what I mean is go, go where those people are and go have a meal in their home that some, some man or woman is making. And they learned it from their grandparents who learned about how to make it from their grandparents. And it's six generations into the family and into the culture at that point. And let them tell you about where the different ingredients come from, how they're prepared, why they do that. Let them tell you about how they learned about it. And you will understand not just their food, but their culture and their heritage at an incredibly high level. Because it is an intrinsic thing that all people must feed themselves, and what people eat generally is very tied to what was, especially older you know, stuff that's been around for a few generations, what was available, the seasonings that were there, the mentality of what was going on at the time, all of those stuff. So that brings me to the next thing. In addition to culture and heritage, it also brings in history. And I like to use Vietnamese cooking for this. Vietnamese cooking is one of the most sophisticated forms of cooking in the world. Because it's a blending of two of the most sophisticated cultures in the world, but you have to understand history to understand why it's that way. So Southeast Asian cuisine itself is incredibly sophisticated, generally bringing in and blending all of the main flavors with salty, sweet, spicy, bitter, sour. Those, those flavors all come together together. And it, it's, it's part of not just Vietnamese cooking, but Thai cooking and, and, and Korean cooking and Japanese and Chinese cooking often have that kind of commonality to it. They're very different, yet they have certain commonalities. So there's that, that's the culture and heritage of the Southeast Asian area. And then they have very heavily influenced by the French, which leads us to the history And not just, not just the culture and heritage of the French, but the history of the French occupation of Vietnam. And it was during that almost century of occupation when Vietnam was basically controlled by the French and other regions in the area, where in that occupation the French brought with them their techniques. And long after they were gone, long after the U.S. stepped into that mess and made a mistake, and long after the U.S. was gone, that history still remains in the cuisine. And if you think about that, it's pretty cool, and it starts to make you wonder when you, when you try something new or different, what is the history, the culture, and the heritage that led from wherever it started to where it is right now? So it becomes a way to understand people. We talked about in the history segment today, diplomacy. The most important thing you can do to be diplomatic is to actually understand who you're talking to. Instead of viewing the thing from your viewpoint, you have to learn to view it from their viewpoint. So from a negotiation standpoint, a diplomatic standpoint, understanding history, culture, and heritage through cooking is actually a survival topic. Next is science. 
which is kind of like biology, chemistry, and physics being the big ones. But there is a lot of science in cooking. You can look at things like the way an acid interacts with something like cabbage to make a slaw. And there's a lot of science in that. Or in fermentation, whether that be something like making a kimchi or a coleslaw, uh, not a coleslaw, a uh, sauerkraut, or through the fermentation that goes on in meats and the curing with salts to make something like biltong that we'll talk about today. If you're a homeschooler, like cooking can be one of the greatest things in the world to use to teach your children because it's real and you get to eat something at the end of it. I mean, think about the lessons that we can teach in culture, heritage, history, and science just with cooking while doing something we have to do every day anyway if we're going to eat well. And then the last one is practical needs. Basically, we all have to eat, and you have what you have. And today, I don't think we see that as much, but when we make traditional meals, then we go back into that history, culture, and heritage and understand that this is what they had and what they had to work with, and that's why it's that way. And then we can learn about the science that allowed them to come up with the techniques to make that limitation into an advantage and make really great food, even if they didn't understand the science, they simply learned by trial and error. When I look at cooking that way, I find it to be absolutely fast. I'm sorry, fascinating. And I think you will too if you kind of look at it that way. So let's talk about cooking wild game for a minute, specifically venison. Venison and any other red meat large mammal that's lean, okay? Um, so that would include something like elk, pronghorn antelope. If you ever are lucky enough to be able to hunt overseas and hunt for some of the African antelope. Bison, not as much, but quite to a great deal, especially certain cuts of it. There's certain rules that I have. And I don't know if they're universal rules. I don't know if like you know professional cooks share my opinion. I don't really care. These are rules that I've developed over about 30 years of cooking my own wild game and fish. And I, I had to do that as a kid. Well, one, because by the time I was in my mid-teens, I moved out. I was on my own. Uh, but even before that happened, like my mother wouldn't touch it. I'd bring fish home. I'd bring game home, whatever. My mother wouldn't touch it. And my grandmother would ruin it because she didn't follow my rules because she was old country Ukrainian, and she would cook any piece of meat to death. This is a woman that used to make a porterhouse steak in a way that today I see as sinful, and until I learned, I didn't know better. She called it frying. Well, she would take an onion and cut it up, and then she would take a cast iron skillet and fill it with about two inches of water. And the salt and pepper on the steak, at least she did that, put the onions and the steak in the cast iron skillet and boil the shit out of it and keep flipping it over while it was boiling until it boiled all the water off. Then she'd throw a pat of butter in it, brown the outside of it. I will give her this. It was very tender, but it was almost completely flavorless. Well, why did she do that? Culture, history, heritage. She was from a time when there was no refrigeration, and she learned to cook from her parents, where that's what you did to a piece of meat to make sure nobody got sick. And you couldn't get her off of it because she was anchored in it. All right? So I had to develop these rules for a variety of reasons, but there's an example of one. Okay, so rule number one, don't overcook it. Don't overcook it. I mean, the concept that we can make a steak, a beautiful pink or red, and then we need to cook venison until it's completely cooked through because it's scary deer meat, is just asinine. Now, there are times when we cook deer meat through with certain techniques and cuts and things like that, just like we do beef. But in general, if it's a, if it's a cut of meat that you would do medium, right, to medium rare with beef, 
You should be doing the same, if not maybe one degree less cooked with venison than beef. Okay? So rule number one, don't overcook it. It's for those of but what about chronic wasting disease? Then just don't eat, don't eat wild game. Because the, the, the prions that actually cause that, first of all, uh, the CWD in, 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 in deer and venison has never once been shown to affect human beings. Just hasn't. It's never happened. So I'm not worried about it. Number two, if you're that afraid of it, the next thing would be not to eat uh, bones and bone stock and stuff. But I do. I'm just saying, you know, um, and, and, and things like brain tissue and spinal tissue, which I don't. But, you know, okay, that would be your other thing. Um, but when you think, well, well, I'll cook it well done and then I'll take care of that. The temperature you have to, to heat those prions to that cause that condition is such that you would incinerate the meat. Like, I don't just mean ruin it. I mean incinerate it. If you cook that meat to 200 degrees, you still wouldn't kill them off. So it's not a concern. It's not a concern. And, you know, just think about the way that we, we cook steak all the time that comes from feedlot beef that comes off of CAFO. And now we're worried about doing the same thing with a beautiful piece of venison from an animal that lives most of its time in the woods. It's asinine. So don't overcook it. Number two. I've said this before, but I have to rant on this every time I talk about cooking game. Gamey is not a flavor. It means you screwed up. When I hear people like, oh, that's that's hardly gamey at all. What is what is the flavor of gamey? Like if I ask you to describe the flavor of salt, you can do that. If I ask you to, defi to define the flavor of sour, you can do that. And sour is sour. Bitter is bitter. Whether we get bitterness from, let's say the white part of an orange peel or something like bitter melon right or the oils of the hot plant bitter is bitter is bitter the bitter that we taste is the same sensation salt if we have sea salt or we have mine salt or we have something with a lot of salt in it like something made like a blood sausage that has a lot of natural salts in the blood salt is salt You got it? Okay. Sweet is sweet. Whether it comes from sugar, like a direct, you know, table sugar, or honey, or from cooking certain vegetables or fruits the certain way that brings out, enhances their natural sugars, sweet tastes like sweet. Spicy? It's hot. You know what's spicy is? Whether it comes from a jalapeno or a peppercorn, it's still hot. It's still spicy. It's the same. So what is the flavor? Those of you that insist there is the flavor that is gamey, what is the flavor of gamey? And how can you say something like a goose and a deer both have a flavor that is gamey that you find off-putting when they're completely different substances and the, the whatever you're calling gamey doesn't taste the same in both of them. It just tastes wrong or off-putting. And that's what, it, instead of, so people say to me, well then Jack, what do you call it? You call it wrong or off-putting. My rule is gamey is not a flavor, it means you screwed up. Something in the processing, handling, or cooking of the meat was done wrong, and therefore you have a flavor you associate with gamey because you don't have another word for it other than it's off-putting. That's what it means. Now, there's also the fact that some of these meats have flavor, and the average person may not be accustomed to flavor, So if I go out and have a really good day and knock down a couple rough grouse, and I bring them home and I cook them for you next to something like a commercially prepared Cornish hen, 
you might say it has a gaminess to it, but what you're really saying is it has flavor. That flavor is not gamey. It's no different than if I take a heritage breed chicken and put it next to a hybrid chicken. It's flavor. It's not gaminess. You can describe those flavors in salty and sweet and bitter and sour. And then that, that, that amazing flavor, what we call umami, right? Which is very, very well known from Asian foods, but umami flavors are in many things. Mushrooms are the epitome of an umami flavor. And there may be an umami flavor to some of these things. It's not gaminess. Gaminess means you screwed up. That's rule two. Rule number three. If you're grilling or frying, you need to be cooking venison hot and fast. We do not grill or fry low and slow with a piece of venison. We don't do it because we will end up with pasty liver-like substance instead of beautiful deliciousness with some pink to red in it that still belongs there. Okay. If you are going to cook low and slow, you need to be using a large, heavy piece of meat and know why you're doing it. That's rule number four. Rule number five, ground venison and other game benefits from added fat. There, there, there's two places I like to get fat for grinding venison. One is through uh, pork butt, which is actually pork shoulder, really fatty pork shoulder, mixed at a ratio of anywhere between 20% to 40% of the total weight. So what that would mean is if we want to come out with 10 pounds of ground meat, 20 pounds of pork butt to 80 pounds to 8 pounds of, of venison would get us to 10 pounds. If we wanted to do it 40%, 4 pounds of pork butt to 6 pounds of venison. You just work out the math for that. If you do that, you will have a lot more appreciation for the meat, the deer meat itself. Actually, though, my preferred fat for venison, you go almost pure fat and you do it at a ratio of about 10%. And one of the best ways to do that is to buy something like a whole uncut ribeye. And it will just be capped with this beautiful fat. And you want to leave some of the fat on that ribeye for cooking when you cook the ribeye. But if you start trimming that up the way a butcher would before you cut the steaks out of it, and you put that fat aside, now remember we need 10%, so we only need a pound to grind into our venison. And we're good at 10, to make 10 pounds, a 9 to 1, right, at that point. And another good source of fat like that is off of a brisket. Briskets have huge fat caps. And generally, as much as I love brisket to self-based, I'll take some of that off. Well, what I'll do is I'll cut that off as I'm cooking throughout the year, and I'll cut it into chunks, and I'll freeze it, and I'll label it. And when it comes time to grind some venison, which I'll talk about in a bit later, you take out as much as you need. So you put it in very small amounts. Usually half a pound is what I'll do with the beef fat because I might be making small amounts and you'll hear why in a bit. And the best thing to do is when you take that stuff out before it even fully defrosts, that's when you put it through the grinder. You want to grind any meat should be almost frozen when you grind it to get the best results. But especially things like beef fat, if you want to get a good grind on them with a coarse grinding uh, size uh, on your on your grinder face, almost completely frozen like like a fat sickle. And you'll get this beautiful grind where if you try to grind it when it's totally uh uh, warmed up and soft, you'll get more of a paste. So that mixed in a venison, because the reason I think that plays better is the pork can begin to overpower the flavor of the deer. And I'm not talking about the pork fat, but the lean component of the pork. But the beef fat is much more closer as an analog to the fat of venison. And then the other thing is I've never tried it, but I would bet 
because they have a very similar flavor profile in the meat themselves. If you had a source of, of, of significant amounts of lamb fat, lamb fat would probably be playing beautifully into ground venison. But one way or another, rule five, ground venison and other game benefits from added fat. Rule number six, game is lean. See rule number one. And to rehearse your memory, rule number one is don't overcook it. So that's kind of my bookends around cooking wild game. So let's talk about some ways to actually cook some deer meat, some things that I think most people don't do. A lot of seasoned deer hunters will say like some of these things like, ah, just grind it up, it's not worth it, whatever, because you haven't tried it yet, okay? So rule number one, uh, not rule number one, uh, method number one, and there's a picture of this on the featured image today for the podcast, is venison flank steak. So if you think about a piece of flank steak off a cow, it's got a lot of fat tallow in it. It's not a really thick cut, except for certain parts that get kind of thick. Um, but it's, it, you know, we use it for fajitas and all, but when you look at it, you see that, you know, for a cow, it's a very substantial animal. It's, it's, it's nothing compared to, let's say, you know, the, the, the ribeye cut or a chuck cut. It's, it's fairly thin. So you imagine on a deer, it's it's really thin, and it's really layered with layers of tallow and fat and silver sheen. Silver sheen on venison is that skin-like layer on the muscle that if we cook it, unless we cook it low and slow for a long time and break it down, it's gristly and it's not very tasty, and it sticks to your teeth and you don't like it. Deer tallow as well can actually be very useful in cooking, but if we cook something hot and fast and it has tallow on it, it's like a candle wax. It coats their teeth. It's just not very good. So what most people do with the venison flank, which again is, is so from the ribs down, the belly flap is the flank, is they'll cut it off and they'll either discard it, which is terrible, or they'll, they'll cut it up and they'll throw it on a grinder. Those are about the two things. Or maybe they throw it to the dog. What I do with it, I cut them off, I fold them up, I try to keep them whole, I try to make a nice good cut when I split that belly. I come right behind the ribs all the way, and I come all the way down with it. And I'll usually take whatever's left of the diaphragm, which would be a hanger steak on a cow, and I'll put the, the flap from the diaphragm and the flap from the belly, fold it up into one package, and then the other side goes into another package. That's enough for one or two people to have a really great snack. And a lot of times it's a bigger deer that's got, I call it breast because I don't know what else to call it. Maybe it's somewhat brisket. But on the ribs there will be this floating layer of muscle that's about very similar looking. I'll take that off if it hasn't been bloodshot because where the deer's been hit. And I'll take you know one off each side of the ribs and I'll put that with the flank steak. All right. And again, this is what everything, nah, it's not worth it. It takes some effort. And the reason people, this is, I'm, I'm going to reinforce this message several times today. One of the reasons people don't take the extra time to make use of these cuts of meat off a deer is because they have to process a whole deer, and it's all in front of them right now, and I don't have time to sit here and do all this stuff. You don't have to do it. Fold them, slap some meat up, put them in a freezer bag, you know, a vacuum seal bag, vacuum seal it nice and tight, label it venison flank steak, put it in the freezer. Because when you take it out a month from now, two months from now, three months from now, or six months from now, like I just did with one left over from last year, it's, it's no big deal to prepare it at that point. It'll take about 25 minutes because it is a little bit tedious. It's worth it. And you know what? 25 minutes when you're watching a football game and you're, like, in my case, my grandnieces are hanging out going, they want to eat deer meat with Uncle Jack. It's no big deal. 25 minutes each side 
When you're trying to process a whole deer, I don't have time for this shit. And that's what happens. So my rule with processing is to minimize all the nitpicky stuff and just put it away and make that part of the prep. And you'll see in other situations that gives you options and advantage, you know, options as to what you can do with it. So to do venison flank steak, you're going to lay it on a cutting board and you're going to get a sharp knife and you're going to separate the lean meat from all the layers of fat and tallow. And you're going to lose a little bit of lean meat, and that's okay. And you're going to get a little bit of tallow or a little bit of fat stuck that's not worth getting off. That's okay. You're going to get most of the silver sheen off. There'll be a little bit here and there you can't get off. That's okay. A fillet knife with a silver sheen, you know, once you get it off the fat piece, you lay it down. You take the fillet knife, and you go in at the side, just like you're taking skin off a fish. And you, once you get the silver sheen, you pull. You pull the silver sheen, you keep the blade turned a little bit down. It'll slip right off. And you end up with a nice little pile of this really beautiful, delicate meat. And now we have to not screw it up. So what we're going to do with this meat, because it's such a treat. So it goes from being something that you just consider waste to being a special treat that maybe you save one side of that deer for the last deer meat of the year before you go and fill the freezer back up, like I just did. And you take that meat and you lay it out, and you take some good sea salt, and you hit it with salt and pepper on both sides. And you let it sit at room temperature for about 30 minutes to absorb that salt and pepper and to come up to temperature. You get a pan and you put your fat of choice in there. Peanut oil, butter, bacon drippings, lard, I don't care. Enough to have about an eighth inch or more layer. Like we don't just want the pan lightly coated. We want to be frying in some fat with this. We get the pan hot. We lay the meat down into it. It'll start bubbling and frying. It's going to have some water in it because of the cut that it is. You're going to hear it bubble out. And as soon as it begins to really cook, you're going to turn it. And as soon as it's cooked, and this is going to cook through. Most of you might have a little spot here or there in a thicker piece that's a little bit of red in it, but it's going to cook through. But it's going to cook fast, and it's going to be juicy. And you're going to get it out, and you're going to let it rest. And it will be one of the best pieces of deer meat you've ever eaten in your life. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. I didn't use this for the featured picture. There's a picture of me and my two nieces tearing it up, right? Two little blonde girls, man. Little dainty, you know, ew type, you know, won't walk out in the grass until I mow it because it's big, too tall and it touches their feet. It bothers them. And they're tearing this up. And people say deer meat dries out. No, you dried out the deer meat because here I am cooking an incredibly lean, incredibly thin piece of venison. But I'm only taking about five minutes to do it. And when you're eating it, juice is coming out of it and rolling down your mouth as though it was a fatted calf. So it's all about the technique there. And that's an example of I don't have an extra 50 minutes, 25 minutes aside, to, to do all that work when I'm processing a deer or two deer you know, in my off time after coming back from a hunting trip. But I have plenty of time to just cut it off, throw it in a bag, freeze it, stick it away, and I have plenty of time to do it when I cook it. So think about that as we go through today. The next one, and this is another one that, like, when I learned this, I just thought about all the ones I wasted. <laughs> Braised venison shanks. And I like to make them with fingerling potatoes that we'll talk about here in a second. So the shank, the true shank of, of venison is basically... The, 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 the lower leg 
And, and you know, I don't know if there's a technical term for which one really is and which one isn't. I know the back is considered a shank. I don't know if the foreleg is also considered a shank by butchers, but I call all four of them a shank. So if you think about the muscle where the muscles are on a deer, and you think about your hand as being the hoof, and then your the you know your wrist being the front ankle, and your elbow. Right, and above is the bicep. That's your lower shoulder. From the elbow down to the wrist, that lower piece there in your arm, your forearm on a deer, is the front shank to me. And on the back, from your knee down to your ankle, that's the shank on a deer. Now, I want you to think about your your shanks on your your feet. You know, above your feet, your 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 uh, your calves. And if you walked around every day like a deer does. And most of us spend a lot of time on our feet anyway. That muscle gets a lot of use. The more use a muscle gets, the more tough it becomes. And the reason is the same reason that like, if you curl weights every day and you do it the right way, the right form, and the right weights for your body weight, you get bigger and bigger biceps. What happens is the fibers in the muscles actually, with use and, and putting them through stress, Break them. I said biology and chemistry and stuff like that are part of cooking. The muscle fibers, if you think of like interlock your fingers, like you're going to make like, you know, here's the church and steeple thing, and then open your hands so that they're pulling against each other. And if you look down at your fingers from the back side, that's kind of the way muscle fibers lay. And if you start to pull your hands apart just a little bit, you get those little micro tears in the muscle. And then what happens? Your body, through the magic of biology and regeneration, rebuilds those micro tears. Well, what happens to the muscle? It gets a little bit thicker. And then through exertion and stress, right, again, it breaks down again a little bit, and it rebuilds, and it gets a little thicker. And your muscle gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger because it adapts to deal with the situation, whether it's a intentional situation like lifting weights or a natural situation like this muscle does a lot of work when I walk. So those four shanks on a deer have that in spades, probably more so than any other muscle on those animals, especially when you think about the way a deer moves. So it's very, very tough meat. Additionally, it has a lot of that silver sheen in it, it has a lot of tallow in it, and it has a lot of tendon in it. So what do most people tend to do with it? Some people, God, this is a sin, just throw it away. If it's not worth it, it's not even worth going through it to get the amount of meat off of it you get to put in a grinder. Because when you put that stuff in your grinder, if you don't spend some time trimming it up, all that silver sheen and tendon wraps around the screw of the grinder, and you end up having to take your grinder apart, and two or three times you get through grinding one freaking deer. And you don't really want that in your ground meat. Okay, so some people just discard it. Some people go through the crap to get it done. Some people take it to their butcher and expect their butcher to do that, and a lot of times the butchers discard it, or they take it home for themselves, because of what I'm about to tell you. So... We have to think to ourselves, how do we cook that piece of meat to minimize our effort and time in a way that makes the best use of it? Because here's the secret to these pieces of meat like this. They're the richest, most flavorful pieces of meat. For the same reason they're tough. They're rich and flavorful because that muscle's been broken down and rebuilt and broken down and rebuilt and broken down and rebuilt so many times. An animal like a deer that doesn't have that much fat, because that muscle's been broken down and rebuilt and broken down and rebuilt, there are fat stores in between where that's happened. And then there's those tendons and that tallow down in there, and that's all flavor if we use it properly.
So all we have to do to make best use of that is we cut the feet off, and we take a saw, and we cut right through the bone so that we expose the marrow. And if we really want to gild the lily a bit, we take those four shanks, and we stick them in the freezer outside of a bag. Just they freeze hard. And before we put them away for good, we pull them out, we take a bandsaw, we cut them into two or three pieces to expose even more marrow. But we don't have to. We can just take a knife and cut the foot off by joining it and cut off at the elbow, I guess you'd say, the elbow or knee by, by boning it out and leave it all together and just throw it in a bag and label it deer shanks. And you freeze them in, in pairs of two. That way if you've got to feed more than, more than one or two people, you can take out two packages. But if you only want to do it for yourself or one person, you take out one package. We take them out. We defrost them. We let them come up to the temperature a bit. We're not even going to mess with trying to trim these things. The way we're going to cook them, it's not going to matter. We are going to take the tip of a sharp knife, and we are going to, there's going to be a lot of silver sheen on them. We're going to prick through that to help get some flavor in there. We're going to flavor them with salt, pepper, garlic, onion, and you know some, some thyme and rosemary. We're going to make a seasoning out of that. If you're, if you're me, you're going to take you know, like a tea, tablespoon of each or a teaspoon of each, and you throw it in a coffee grinder, and you're going to grind it so that it makes a nice coating. We're going to coat that meat, and we're going to let it sit for about 30 to 40 minutes like that with that coating on it. We're going to take a nice Dutch oven, and we're going to fill it with a mix of about half water and half red wine so that the, when we put the venison shanks in there, there's enough liquid to just cover them. And we're going to cook it on about 250 degrees for as long as it takes for us to be able to open that Dutch oven and see it all bubbling in there and take a fork and pull on it and the meat just comes off. We can run up to 275 if we want to get it cooked a little faster. 300 would be your absolute maximum. This is going to be an all-day dish, but you don't have to do any work. It just sits there and cooks and smells wonderful. When it's close to done, let's say an hour out, we're going to take some fingerling potatoes We're going to split them in half, long ways, and we're going to put them all around the shanks in that, that wonderful liquid that's got all that flavor going on now. And as they cook, they're going to absorb some of that liquid. As the liquid goes down, we're going to add a little bit more. If you, What I usually do is I will use, when I put the water component in, I will use a little bit of better-than-bullion beef paste. I don't need a lot because so much flavor is going to come out of that meat, but that's great. Another great addition to that is mushrooms, and depending on what kind of mushrooms is when you do it. If they're just fresh chopped mushrooms, just throw them in like 15 minutes before it's done. If they are um, you know, a dehydrated mushroom that has a lot of tooth to it and it needs time to really simmer down, like a dehydrated oyster mushroom, put them in there right from the beginning. And when you eat this, it is one of the most exquisite pieces of meat you will ever have the pleasure to eat. It is so rich that the amount you think you can eat, you're probably going to eat about, you probably could eat 50% of what you think you want to eat and be happy and full. But you're going to eat about 70% of what you think you can eat and you're going to force one more bite and you're going to lay on the couch and you're going to rumble and grouse about how full you are and you're going to be completely happy and content. This is a meal for a cold winter day. With those potatoes and that, oh my God. 
And this is the good news about this. Most people that hunt deer will never believe this. That's good. So if you know a lot of people that hunt, and like you get together in deer camp or something like that, remember what I said a lot of people will throw those away? Just take everybody's. Just take everybody's. I'd be happy to go to a deer camp sometime with you know like 20 or 30 guys where everybody gets a deer and just take everybody's shanks and go home. That's how good they are. All right, I have told you. You now know the secret of making this. You'll never grind one again. Here's one I just made recently. I find very few people smoke venison because it's lean and you're going to overcook it. Well, not if you don't cook it too hot, dummy. So recently I made a piece of venison leg, and this was about maybe, oh, I don't know, a third of a, of a back leg. The front side, when you look down at the cut, it kind of has almost a triangular shape as it goes to the front, and there's a couple different muscle groups in there. And what it is, I had the top piece of that probably weighed about two and a half pounds, and I was going to cut steaks out of it or whatever, and I decided to make it a roast. I didn't get fancy with it. I didn't tie it all up or anything like that. I just threw it in a freezer bag, vacuum sealed it, labeled it deer roast, threw it in there. Didn't trim the excess off it, didn't trim the fat, didn't trim anything. Why? Now I have options. I can take that out, trim it up, cut it into steaks, and do it hot and fast on the grill. Or that little bit of deer fat that's in there and a little bit of silver sheen is actually an advantage if we're going to do something low and slow. So since it was the multiple muscle groups and taking up the front side of the leg, even though it looked like a big lump, you're actually able to unroll it to a fairly thin, long piece of meat. So that's what I did. I unrolled it. I hit it with Chef Keith's um, low and slow barbecue uh, seasoning on the inside. I rolled it back up and I hit it on the outside with it. I put it in my Bradley smoker. I smoked it for about two and a half to three hours, but I never let the temperature of the smoker get up to about about 220 is as high as it got. And as it got close toward the end, I kept. I don't know how long I did it. I started checking it with my meat thermometer, and when I got an internal temperature of 140 degrees, which is a nice medium rare, I took it out and I let it sit for several hours before we cut into it. My buddy David came over, and when I sliced into that piece of meat and he looked at it, he made a sound that sounded like, I don't know, not good for one dude to be listening to another dude make, right? I mean, it was like, oh. <laughs> and, that's, and it was very, very rare. It wasn't bloody, but it was very, very rare. It tasted like the best piece of smoked prime rib you've ever eaten. There was nothing dry about it. I promise you, when I cook deer meat, there is nothing gamey about it. You could not have distinguished it from a perfectly medium-cooked piece of beef over smoke. It was a roast beef experience. And it was incredible. And what it made me want to do is make like a whole back leg like that. It was fa-freaking-nominal. And that's all there was. There was nothing else. I set it in a bowl to let it rest, and I covered it with foil. And when it rested, some of the juices still continued to come out of it. And when we were slicing it, we were just taking those, those, those slices and dipping it in the juice, and I went... I should have put a bowl under the rack and caught like the jus as it came out of the meat because it would have been like the most amazing, like you could have put a sandwich with the most amazing French dip you would have ever made. Don't be afraid to smoke venison. Here's another one. I've never done this, but I've eaten it twice because I just can't bring myself to do this to a backstrap. So the backstrap is 
your chops, right? It's basically along the ribs and all the way down to the rump roast. So it's that, that piece of meat along the backbone. It's a backstrap. Some people call it the tenderloin. It is not the tenderloin. It is the loin. Tenderloins we're not really going to talk about today, but they're up underneath. You open the stomach up and all the organs come out, and you look at the backbone from the inside looking up, you see two long pieces. That's filet mignon on a, on a piece of beef. And on a deer, that's a tenderloin. So it's the, when we're talking about the backstrap, we're talking about the loins. And the first time I had this, I was hunting in the same place I'm going this year. It's a place called West Kerr Ranch. And um, I was there, and I was hunting for uh, psychid deer, uh, which is an exotic deer. And there were some guys, uh, like two guys and the one guy's dad were hunting for just white-tailed doe, like I'm going to do this time. And they had all shot, I think one guy shot two, uh, and the two kids had both shot one that day, and they were going to go hunt another day. So they had four deer. So we were, sh like, it's like, you know, a cabin you stay in down there, and... Uh, they got stuck with me as like the, the fourth wheel in their cabin because they have four bunks in there. And they were nice enough to go, hey, yeah, you can have some, some of this. And all they did was they took that one full backstrap and they sliced it, you know, I'd say about quarter inch thick, hit it with salt and pepper, and dredged it in flour and fried it like chicken fried steak. Uh, oh, my goodness. I, I still, like, because I do a tenderloin or I'm mean, sorry, a loin, a little bit differently. I'll, I'll throw that in as a bonus in a second. And I can't, I can't bring myself to do this, but it was like juicy deer potato chips because it was fried in that oil, that hot oil. There's no way it's going to dry out unless you overcook it, which they did. As soon as it turned that golden brown on the batter, they pulled it out. And I was at one other deer camp where I mentioned that somebody did this, and somebody shot a deer and decided to try it. And so I've only ever eaten it twice. It's phenomenal. But I, I have a hard time doing that to a backstrap. I just do. But what it is, it's a great way to stretch one over a lot more people because the batter adds body and calories and stuff like that. Now, the way I do a loin, I'll usually cut the whole backstrap into two or three pieces, depending on the side of the deer, and I leave it whole. I don't cut it into chops, as they call them. And I'll grill that on both sides on a hot, fast grill and, and, and bring it to an internal temperature of about 135 to 142 at the top end. And then, then after it rests, I'll slice it. And that's fan. It's just, that's all you do. Salt and pepper and on the grill and you're golden. You can do other seasonings if you want. Uh, but that's how I do a loin. Um, and I have a way that I do, uh, pork loin from feral pigs that I'll talk about in a minute, that someday I'm going to do this with deer, maybe this year, because I, I know it would be fantastic. Uh, the next one I have is deer heart. And deer heart's another thing that I'm just a, I'm a hell of a scavenger of deer heart, man. I'm somewhere where guys are hunting deer, and, and they don't take the heart. I always take the heart. I usually don't take other people's livers, because I only you know have so much use for deer liver. But heart, I'll... Pff, You know, I, if I'm in a camp and there's 10 guys there and there's 10 deer hearts and they don't want them, I'm going home with 10 deer hearts with a smile on my face. And if I'm lucky, I'm going home with 40 deer shanks and I don't need a deer of my own. Um, but the heart, I'm not a big guy on organ meats. I'm really not. And I think the heart gets unfairly lumped in with organ meats. And what I mean by this is the liver is a toxin filter. It's not a muscle at all. It is a true organ. A kidney is a toxin filter. It is not a true organ. You get what I'm saying? Like, they're not made of meat. 
right? Not, they're not made of muscle, I guess. They are made of meat because they're a protein, but they're not made of what we think of as meat, a muscle protein. The heart is a piece of meat. So what I say is the heart is not a true organ, if, if, if that makes sense. We call it an organ. It performs a vital function, but the function it performs is that of a muscle. It contracts. Thump, 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 and it pushes blood through the body. It's not a filter. It's made of muscle fibers. Okay? So the, the, the a heart has more in common with a chop, as far as the meat goes, than it does with a liver or a kidney. So I, I, I just, you know, even though I'm not a big organ eater, and I know a lot of people, that's what they say, well, I don't like organs. Well, have you tried heart? Now, here's what we have to think about with heart. So what did I say about the shank and why the shank was the way that it is? Because that deer is walking around every day on that shank. So the muscle gets finely grained, very flavorful, and quite toothy and tough. Well, when that deer's asleep, that heart's still going boom, 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 boom. From the minute that that deer forms, and it's not even out of its mother yet, once that heart forms, it starts as a baby, right, very, very fast. Till the, day, till the day it's born, till the day it dies, boom, boom, boom. That muscle, heart muscle, is very, very fine grained, but it's actually fairly tender until it's overcooked. So heart, fast, hot, off, and cooked to like a medium. Fantastic, and you can either cut it into strips, and there are certain little tendons and things like that and fat caps you need to trim all that off but you cut it like the size of like pepper steak salt and pepper a little butter in a cast iron pan cook it till it's just done get it out let it rest a little bit it's fantastic we usually eat it by it's like a finger food and then the other way is to cut it maybe into four to six pieces also cleaning out the ventricles and all and putting it on the grill salt pepper garlic whatever you want on it and cook it over like a charcoal fire a lot of times when I shoot a deer, if I'm in a deer camp or something, I'll cook the heart that night over the fire for, and let everybody have a little bit. And I'm being very generous because I could sit down and eat like heart until I couldn't move anymore and I'd be a happy man. Don't throw the deer hearts away. The last one I have on deer for you guys today is Bill Tong. And I've talked about this a lot in the past, but I couldn't leave it out today. And I, I just want to point out how simple this is and how not to overthink it and not to overcomplicate it. So biltong is basically, you can think of it like the African version of jerky, but it's not really an accurate way to think of it because jerky is thin and dried, right? Where biltong is more of a thick and cured. It's almost a dry pickling. And it has a little bit of a fermentation going on, but it doesn't take anywhere as long as making like a prosciutto or a dry sausage or something like that or a country ham. It's something that can be done in a couple weeks to, you know, that's about it. About two weeks is all you need at the most. And the way we make biltong is we want to separate the muscle groups. Because as it dries, if you have two different muscles or you get two different muscle groups, it's just going to fall apart. And we want to cut thick you know, around the, the, the neighborhood of about one, if you could do it perfect, you'd have like a one-inch sphere or a one-inch cube. But you're not going to be able to do that. But thick. We want to get as much of the tallow, fat, sinew, uh, that, that silver sheen, all that stuff off of it. So your larger pieces of deer meat are really good for this. And then we're going to use apple cider vinegar. And we can either, there's two ways I do it. And what I used to do, I put it in a spray bottle and I'd spray my meat before I would roll it in the salt and pepper and everything else. 
And then what I started doing is I just get a bowl with some vinegar in it, and I just like dredge the meat like you're dredging it to like if it imagine it was an egg wash and you were going to roll it in flour and cornmeal to fry it. All right. So I take that and I take my chunks of meat and I kind of get like a, a station going and I get a big you know non-reactive uh, tray to put the meat in and I lay out my meat and I coat it with salt, black pepper, and coriander. And how much salt? Probably less than you're going to want to use because you're going to be freaked out about it and worried. You think about it like a, a, a nicely salted, not make you, you know, wish it wasn't so salty and not wish there was more salt, a nicely salted uh, soft pretzel. A little bit of salt all over the place. That's why you want to use a coarse, coarse salt so you can see it. So we're going to put that salt, pepper, coriander mixture on the meat and we're going to put it into some sort of a tub that can go in the refrigerator overnight. If we're smart, we're going to push it like all to one side and tilt it so all of the juice that comes out from the salt, the blood and whatnot, all kind of drains off and away from the meat. We're going to take it out the next day. We're going to lay it out again. We're going to hit it with some more black pepper and coriander. No more salt. We've done enough salting. And we're going to hang it somewhere with low relative humidity in a temperature of about 75 degrees in the shade to let it cure. That's the typical American home running an air conditioner. Or in the wintertime, running heat. It's nice and dry because of the climate control. you got good airflow. And I just hang a string up across my office. And I tie knots in it so it don't slide as it, if it weighs the string down. So I'll tie a knot like every six inches and hang a string across two walls. And I make hooks out of paper clips. You just take big paper clips and you know pull them apart so they make an S-hook. One side through the meat, one side over the, the string. And let it hang. And it'll start to turn like a black, almost mummified thing. And you kind of watch it. And usually you're looking at five to seven days. Some bigger pieces may take longer. But when I consider it done is when you pick it up, and it, for the size it seems really light. But if you take a knife and you cut it, it's a little tiny bit moist in the middle. It's got a little bit of red to it. It almost looks like a prosciutto or something like that, the way that meat is. And once it's like that, then I want to get it so it'll stop drying. So I'll put it in a jar uh, with a lid on it, or I'll put it in a freezer bag, uh, you know, Ziploc bag sealed up, and store it like that. It's best stored uh, under your bed, where you crawl under there with a flashlight needed at night when no one's there to know you're doing it, so nobody steals your biltong. It's a very hard thing to share biltong, though I do do it at some times. It is fantastic. It's like the ultimate survival food. I learned about making it from a guy named Peter Hathaway Capstick. He was a writer for Guns and Ammo and Shooting Times and other things. He also wrote a lot of books about hunting in Africa. And it was one of his books about hunting in Africa that was kind of like a pieces, parts book, little short stories. He wrote a thing about how to make biltong, and I will be forever in his debt. Um, he's passed away years ago now, but that was like, I loved his books. He's one of my favorite authors. He's up there with like Robert Wark and Ernest Hemingway to me. Um, you know, in more of the magazine world, I guess, like the Jack O'Connors and Elmer Keith's. Uh, just he's that league to me. But the biggest contribution of my life he's made is Bill Tong. And he, he writes in the story uh, that he's talking about how, how long the stuff lasts that he found a vest that he used when he was a cropping officer. And it had been almost 10 years. And in the back of the vest were two pieces of Bill Tong made from Cape Buffalo that were about as big around as a wrist. And they were wrapped up in aluminum foil. had been there almost 10 years. And he said it was a tad dry for his taste, but it was still quite serviceable and, and pretty good. 
So talk about something that lasts. So biltong, that's your survival food of the day. Uh, some other little pieces, parts before we move on to other things that we can cook today. Number one, if you if you take the liver from a deer, I think the highest use of deer liver is in sausage. And I would say, you know, you can add whatever you do to make your sausage mix, because now we're going to do like beef fat or pork fat or whatever in our grind, um, you can add about 10% liver and get almost no real notice that there's liver in there. And you can probably go as high as 20% and you won't mess things up. But don't know, no higher than 20% of total weight. And I, I'm more aligned as of like 10%. So if I was going to make a deer sausage, I might do something like 9 pounds a deer meat, to a pound of beef fat, to a pound of deer liver ground together. Liver, again, cubed up, frozen when it goes through the grinder, or you make liver mush instead of liver grind. And you mix that in, it's fantastic. Wild hog liver was good the same way. The other use for liver, because I don't really like liver in and by itself, is for your dogs. If you feed it to your dogs, please do so in moderation. If you do it raw, it's probably fine. My dad one time, I shot this deer, And he said, make sure, he always said, make sure you bring the liver home for the dogs. So I brought the liver home. He, you boil it for the dogs. I don't think dogs need deer liver boiled, but he boiled it all the time for the dogs. So he boils this whole deer liver and he cuts it up in cubes and throws it in a bowl in the refrigerator. And that day we had this little Yorkshire Terrier, like it's not a toy one, this dog's about 11 pounds. He fed that 11 pound dog about two pounds of deer liver. And that dog shit exploded on the wall. Like, There was dog crap up the wall, two foot tall, and the dog made, you know, when they dragged her butt, made like S-turn skid marks all over the place. He literally blew up that dog's butt because it's so rich. So if you're going to feed liver to your dogs, especially if you're going to cook it, they love it. But, it, you know, the way to do that is two or three pieces on top of their regular meal for a couple weeks. It's great for them, but if you feed them a straight meal of that stuff, don't do it. You've been warned. Uh, also, I mentioned briefly, I don't tend to grind my deer meat um, when I'm processing my deer. What I'll do is I'll take all the meat that I would normally grind, I cut it into chunks about the size for stew, and I put it in bags, and I weigh the bags about a pound apiece. And I label those bags venison stew meat or deer stew meat. Why? Let's say I want to make a couple pounds of sausage. Okay, well, I take two of those bags out and I put them through the, I trim them up, refreeze them a little bit so they're nice and stiff, take my fat, put them through the grinder together, and I make my sausage. What if I don't want to make sausage? What if I want to make deer stew? Well, now I can make deer stew. Here's the exception. If I'm going to make, you know, 20 pounds of deer sausage, I'm going to dedicate like half a deer to make, then I'll go ahead and grind it, mix it, and do, do it all in one shot. If I'm going to do dry sausage, I would do that. But when I'm processing deer most of the time, one deer doesn't make a lot of sausage unless you give up a lot of cuts that you otherwise would not make into sausage. If you just take the ground part of it, like the, especially when, you know, you're cooking the shanks, right? You're talking about the upper shoulder and the trimmings. It's not a lot. You know, it's maybe three or four pounds. So you make these three or four little bags of stew meat. And now you can do either or. Because I can always take the stew meat out and spend 15 to 20 minutes that I don't have on processing day to clean that up and put it through a grinder to make a deer burger or deer chili or deer sausage. But if I've already grinded it, I can't put it back together to make stew. You see what I mean? 
So I just leave it that way, and it saves me time, and it gives me more options. And it's one of the best little hacks that I've found. Next, do not discard bones. unless you're If you're afraid of seed, seed, uh, chronic wasting disease, fine. Which is like the deer equivalent of mad cow, fine. But not a single human being has ever contracted anything resembling a mad cow type disorder from eating venison with a CWD problem. And if a deer has CWD, it's really, really obvious. Don't eat that deer. Right? I mean, if there's something wrong with an animal, don't eat it. I, that's, that's how I've always been. So I always take the bones, and now that I have a bandsaw, man, you cut those bones up to expose that uh, bone marrow. You throw them in the oven. You roast them for 30 to 45 minutes. I have a convection oven, and when I do bones for a bone stock, I'll put it on what's called convection roast, and I'll roast the bones until they're brown. And then make a bone stock the way you normally do. Oh, my God. Don't throw the bones away. Uh, next up, uh, some other game and fish ideas. I wanted to throw some stuff at you other than just deer meat. When you get me talking about food, we're going to talk about food. So one of my favorite like little guilty pleasures, and I grew up eating this all the time. I cooked this when I was camping out. I cooked this at the house. Uh, when I was on my own, I'd go to a little pond near my place when I needed something to eat with a couple kernels of corn and come home with, you know, 10 bluegill, and I, I would cook this. And it's just basically fried bluegill or any panfish, any kind of panfish, uh, small bass, whatever, anything that's scaled that you can scale and, and, and clean, right, that's not that big of a fish. And the way I do this, it, it, I usually scale... At, like if I'm at a pond or something where it's, it's doable, I'll scale right there. I'll do all my cleaning right there. And if you get a, a just a, a regular, like people use a spoon or a knife or whatever, they make fish scalers. They're basically like a little tool that has a little serrations on them. They kind of look like, like almost like two steak knives side by side is the way that the blade looks a little bit. And you just go backwards and the scales come right off. Well, if you, if you go ahead and take a knife and knife the fish in the brain with the knife, it'll kill the fish. So you take all the fish, set up a board, Stab them all in the head. That way nobody's going to swim away on you. And everybody's dead, and then this is not a mean, horrible thing that you deserve to go to hell to do for a fish. You put the fish out, he's euthanized. You take the fish, hold it under the water, and scrape it. Now, mind you, don't do this where alligators are, okay, or something like that. <laughs> don't do this in Africa where the crocodiles are. But in the most places you can do that. Or you take, you know, a like a small tub and set it like on a dock or something, and you can do it there where you can stand up on a rail and scale it underwater, and the scales don't go flying everywhere. So we scale the fish, do however you want, however you scale fish, cut the head off, and when you cut the head off, one of the big things that people do that I think is wasteful with fish, especially bluegill, they're not that big of fish, but they have quite a bit of meat up on the top, they cut that head straight behind the fin. Well, there's, And you look at the head, there's this big block of meat like behind the brain pan. So what I'll do is I'll cut up to that, and when I get up past the ribs, I'll turn the knife on like a 45-degree angle and go right up behind the eye. You don't get into where the brains are or nothing. It's all straight meat. So now you've got that fish cut kind of a little like a crescent to the top side of it. And you've got it, uh, you've got it, you know, filleted, skin on. And then just slit the belly and gut it. Take your knife and make scores in the skin. Just cut through the skin like straight down, like at the back, like long ways, like you're making stripes on a fish, like you're making uh, horizontal stripes on the fish, just barely through the skin. And then fry that in like bacon fat or lard or oil. And you can straight fry it just that way and crisp the skin. It's very good. But what's even better is like a corn flour flour mixture 
and you don't have to dredge it or anything. You just maybe wet the meat a little bit, wet, wet the skin a little bit so it'll stick, and roll it in some corn flour and, 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 and flour mixture. Uh, Louisiana Fish Fry is a brand, if you don't want to make your own, that's fantastic for this. And get that nicely coated. Get it inside the belly area and all, too. And then just pan fry. You don't have to deep fry. Pan fry that. Oh, my goodness. And that's a simple pan fish that you can usually find a place you can catch as many as you want. You know, and you know, you need them to be five, six inches to be worth cooking, but that's usually not that big a challenge to find. Another one I won't really talk deeply about how to do this, but fish tacos are something a lot of anglers I just don't think realize you can make with freshwater fish. It's good with catfish, really good with sand bass. And the way I do my fish tacos, I give you the, the quick down and dirty version because I've talked about it recently in the past, is I'll get some dried chili peppers, like New Mexico and Ancho, like half and half and get a pot of water, bring it to a boil, pull the stems and seeds off those dried chili peppers, throw them in the water, let them rehydrate. And after they rehydrate, we'll go ahead and put them in like a blender or food processor and process them down to like a chili sauce, put them back in the pot. We'll add some cumin, some cilantro, some lime juice, some salt and pepper. Do this all to taste and then cook it down and reduce it till you get kind of a, a thicker sauce. And then just salt and pepper your fish. Now, you want boneless, skinless fish for this. The skin-on fillets would actually be a really interesting idea here because that skin crisps, and it's so good. And we're going to take that, and we're going to cook that in a, in a pan with some oil. Usually I do salt and pepper, a little bit of cumin on the fish, and then olive oil in the pan. And we start cooking the fish. And when the fish is like 70% done, start spooning some of the, um, the chili sauce you made onto the fish and mix that and let it finish cooking. And usually, once you get the sauce and it's fully coated, if you started putting the sauce on at 70%, you can kill the heat and the residual heat will cook the fish through. And that way you won't turn the fish into mush. You don't want mush. And then, you know, dress that on a, on a like a corn tortilla taco any way that you want. Guacamole, jalapenos, all good on that. Right when it's done cooking, another little handful of, like, uh, cilantro, some chopped fine, real fine chopped, sliced uh, green onion, and some lime juice at the end. Oh, fan freaking tastic. Next one, really, really easy. We'll stick with fish here for a minute. We'll go back to game. Um, catfish steaks. Steaks, yes. So this is for your channel cats that are, let's say, about 22 inches to about as big as you'll keep them. Because I'm a guy, when I get a certain size of the catfish, he goes back. But you're, you're like 24 to 28 inch channel cats are perfect for this. This is like the easiest way in the world to deal with catfish. By the way, if you want to fillet catfish, you don't tack their head to a tree, cut, get fish skinners and be pulling them, all that crap bullshit. Normal size catfish, 14 to 20 inches, lay it on its side, get a fillet knife, cut it, flip it over, skin it, done. Like any other fish. These bigger cats, though, um, you'll waste less this way and it'll be less work. Cut the head off. And when it gets bigger cats, like a good, really strong electric knife or like a hacksaw. I usually need a hacksaw. Just whack, because they got that big, heavy bone. Slit the stomach, pull the guts out, give it a good washing. Lay the fish down. A lot of times, the best thing to do after you do that, put the fish in the refrigerator whole, nice and straight, for a couple hours. It'll firm up. It'll dry out a little bit. So when you do this next part, it'll cut better for you. Then lay it down and cut one-inch steaks out of it. Like, if you've ever seen a salmon steak where when you look at it, you see the backbone in the middle and it's got both sides. And if, if it's the, the part of the fish where the belly flaps are, the belly flaps are hanging down there, just cut it in one-inch sticks like that. 
one inch steaks like that. So you just go down the fish, start cutting steaks, steak, steak, steak. Eventually you'll get past the belly flaps and you'll still have a pretty substantial fish. And you'll get down to the last like six inches of the tail. When you get down to that, fillet it off and cut the skin off. And use those as two little fillets. And leave the rest as steaks. Don't worry about the skin. Catfish skin is all nasty. It's not going to matter. Trust Jack. Trust Jack. He knows what he's doing. I've been doing this inside with the, for the catfish. I've been doing this with big catfish since I was nine years old in Jacksonville, Florida. You can trust me. You take those steaks and freeze them, a couple to a pack, whatever, for how you want to use them. And then you take that steak when you're ready to cook it. You let it come up to room temperature. You get a nice hot grill, gas or charcoal, either one. Relax. I know it's fish. It's not going to stick. It's not going to fall apart. Trust me. Salt and pepper on both sides of that catfish. Before you salt and pepper it, hit it with a little bit of oil, like an olive oil, a peanut oil is kind of my favorite because uh, I don't like to get too high temperatures when I'm using olive oil. So a little bit of oil, you can brush it, you can sprinkle it, you can just rub it with your fingers, just a little bit of oil to get things started out. Salt and pepper on both sides of it. Remember, there is skin, but it's a one-inch thick steak, and the skin's around the outside, like a piece of salami that you peel the skin off of. Huh? Just relax. It's okay. Put it straight on the grill. Nice, hot grill. We don't want it too cold, and we don't want it too hot. We want the same kind of temperature we'd be dropping a nice piece of chicken on, where we don't want to burn it instantly, but we want it to start instantly sizzling. It's fish. It's fine. Assuming your grill's clean, your fish is room temperature, you've used a little bit of oil, and your grill is hot, but not too hot, when you put it on, you're going to hear, And what's going to start happening much quicker than you would think is you're going to start hearing and little flames are going to be coming up. And white grease, which is the catfish's fat, is going to start rendering out of the catfish. It's going to fall down to the flames and the flames are going to come up and they're going to kiss the catfish. It's not the kind of grease you get out of a, you know, a, a piece of chicken with a lot of skin on it where it creates a fire. It's like... And you're going to let that cook until it... Just be calm and patient. Don't start trying to move it around. Let it cook till it's about halfway cooked. This is probably about somewhere between three and five minutes, depending on the temperature. Look at it. You see the meat start to firm up. We're going to take a spatula and we're going to flip it over. You're going to be amazed. It's not going to stick at all. And when you turn it over, it's going to have this wonderful brown color to it. If it doesn't, we're going to finish it by flipping it back over, but we're not going to touch it now because now the new raw side of the fish is down. We're going to cook that. If it didn't get as brown as we liked, we're going to let it go a little bit longer. Once it firms up, we can take a look at it, but make sure it's firmed up before we try to pick it up and look at it. And we're going to get a nice little browned char on both sides of this. And then we're going to take it off. We're going to put it on our plate. And that piece of skin that people are just losing their minds over, all we're going to do is grab it with one finger and just it's going to peel right off. And we're going to either throw it in the trash Or we're going to drop it on the ground and the puppies are going to lap it up and be very happy that you saved the skin for them. And then you have this beautiful piece of catfish. And catfish can be a little greasy and a little bit fatty, but that fat has cooked and rendered out and it's seared the outside of it. And the next time somebody talks about a salmon steak, you're going to go, yeah, okay, go eat your salmon, freaking hipster. You don't have any idea. This is one of the most fantastic pieces of fish you will ever eat. And it's you notice there's no sauce and this and that. Salt, pepper, grill, done. A little bit of oil. You don't really need the oil, but it will give you the confidence to do what I said. 
and it will help transfer the heat. That's the big thing about oil. Oil is not just about seasoning and flavor. It's about heat transfer. Oil helps the heat to transfer. If you've ever noticed, if you pick up a hot piece of meat and flip it with your fingers instead of using tongs, you can usually get away with it, especially if it's just moist. But if it's a greasy piece of meat and it's got a hot fat on it and that fat sticks to your fingers, unlike just like some moisture, it really burns. It really transfers the heat. It's not just because it sticks, it's because it's a good heat transfer mechanism. So by using that little bit of oil on the fish, not only do we help reduce stick, but we get that heat transferring in there right away. We start rendering that white grease out. When the first time you do it, this could take you, you know, 15 minutes to cook the steaks, or it could take you seven minutes to cook the steaks. You're going to have to learn your own grill, your technique, and what you like. But, you know, fish is done when you can put the fork in and it flakes. Right? And catfish will stay nice and firm if you do this. And you will be very happy and you will be sending me emails going, I didn't believe you, but I tried it and I will never do it any differently ever again. Alright. So more stuff. How about grilled squirrel? Grilled squirrel. This is a recipe I kind of happened on to. I, I, I wish I would have not eaten a lot of squirrel in my life. I learned this after I got here. Uh, Charlie took to destroying every squirrel on the property. And uh, if he didn't destroy a squirrel, he would tree the squirrels. And now I have no squirrels left. I haven't seen a squirrel here in a long time. Um, but when he would tree one, I'm like, the dog trees a squirrel, we shoot the squirrel. So I go to the gun and shoot the squirrel. I remember one day him and Max treat a squirrel, and I didn't have time to mess with it. So I, I just went in the house, and I didn't didn't shoot the squirrel. And they had it treed like where I could see them. And they kept looking at the window like, hey, jerk face, come out here and shoot the squirrel. So eventually I went out there and shot the squirrel and let them just tear it apart and eat it themselves. But, you know, we were getting all these, you know, instead of going out hunting and coming home with a half a dozen, you know, I'm getting one squirrel at a time. And, you know, you skin it right away, and it's really fast to do if you skin it when it's hot. And I was thinking, like, what can I try? And I had the grill going one night. I was cooking other things, and they treat a squirrel. So I shot the squirrel, and I was cooking steak. So I had the steak seasoning out, the Chef Keith steak seasoning. So I'm like... Whatever, fine. So I take the squirrel, and I cut the squirrel in half and then in a quarter. So I've got the front, two front quarters, two rear quarters nice and flat. I hit them with some, some oil, and I hit them with the Chef Keith seasoning. And I got the grill like screaming hot on one side, and I'm doing direct, indirect cooking where you cook over the heat and then you cook over the indirect. So I'm like, screw it, threw the squirrel on the direct heat. And like everything in my mind is telling me this is not how to cook a squirrel, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I cook it, just I just, just sear the outside of both all four quarters, And I took some aluminum foil, I put it you know, all in one packet of aluminum foil, closed it up. By now the steak's done, because this is literally right in the middle of dinner. And I throw it on the indirect side of the grill and close the cover. We go eat dinner and sit there for 30 minutes. I go out, and now I've eaten dinner, but I'm going to try the squirrel anyway. And I open it up, and it's steaming, and it's moist. And I'm going, what the hell? There's no such thing as moist squirrel. Squirrel's incredibly lean. And I pick it up, and I bite into it, and the meat just comes. And this was an older squirrel. And the meat just comes off the bone, and it's juicy, and it was amazing. And I went from, unless I'm doing squirrel stew, from now on, this is how all squirrel gets cooked. It's fantastic. It's that simple. Salt and pepper, or Chef Keith seasoning, or whatever seasoning you want. Sear it, put it in foil, indirect for 30 minutes. That's the whole thing. But that foil packet needs to be absolutely sealed where none of that moisture gets out, where you get that nice puffy packet thing going on as the, the everything expands. And about 30 minutes is just right. I nailed it the first time. I've never messed with it. Uh, squirrel stew is a favorite of mine. A lot of people don't like to make squirrel stew because it's a pain in the ass to, you know, 
bone that much squirrel. Take all the meat off the bones. I don't do it. I do just what I said there. I, squ I skin the squirrels. I quarter them out. I cut the, uh, the, the ribs off with a pair of uh, shears. And I put all the ribs in a bag. And, and, and that eventually gets fed to the dogs. Because uh, the ribs are just too small of a bone mixed in there. But otherwise, you should have your four quarters. I roll them in a little bit of flour and brown them, and I make them like you'd make any beef stew, which I'm not going to go into today. But, I mean, that's it. It's just, you know, you brown them in some fat, and then you add your, your, your onions and your carrots and your celery for a mirepoix, and you cook that down, and you put your squirrel back in, you start adding your liquid, celery, carrots, potatoes, and pff, you're good. I mean, that's just awesome. How about groundhog barbecue? I know some of you rolling your eyes now going, he's going to be cooking possum on a half shell next. That's armadillo, by the way. That's one thing I haven't ever eaten. I try it, but I haven't actually eaten armadillo yet. I, I make a mean coon, but we're not going to go into cooking coon today. Just, just groundhog. And people are like, ah, oh, they're nasty. Wait a minute. Let's think for a second about what a groundhog is and what it does. What does a groundhog eat? Does it eat A, out of the garbage? Okay. B, dead puppies. C, Rotted fish guts, or D, herbaceous vegetation? Ding, ding, ding. The answer is it eats herbaceous vegetation. That's what groundhogs eat. They eat grain and greens. That's it. They don't eat bugs. They're literally a little cow. They're actually a lot closer to a little pig. That's why they call them groundhogs. But they have a diet far more like a cow than a pig. Because a pig eats everything. A pig will eat everything I just said more, right? If, it, if you can get it in its mouth and it tastes good to it, a pig will eat it. A pig will eat you if you ain't careful. So groundhog, here's how this happened. You know, I grew up with that a lot, and I ran trap lines. And one of the things that we cooked a lot, and I cooked a lot, especially once I was on my own, was raccoon, because I trapped so many damn coons. And when you're wondering what you're going to you know, have in the refrigerator to eat by the end of the week, and you're looking at three animals with a lot of meat on them, it's hard to throw it away. So I learned how to cook those things. And the other thing that we would go out and do in the summer, and I started doing a lot you know, when I was trying to find a place to hunt, was I'd go out and shoot groundhogs for the farmers. And it was you know, Dutch country, Pennsylvania. And they had this, this Pennsylvania Dutch, hey, now, how you doing? Like that, that's how they talk, you know. You, you ask them, like, uh, where's this creek? When I was looking for a creek, I'm talking to this Dutchman, and, and a Dutchman goes, well, no, you went too far, you missed it. you got to go back down the road about a half a mile. More like half a rifle shot down that way. You'll see the big tree next to the mansion, make a left, and it's down there. Right? This is how these guys are. They're just salt of the earth, awesome guys. And uh, you go out, and you, you talk to them about hunting on their property. Well, I don't know. I had some guys here before, and that's, you know, they, they messed things up. But you go out in the summer, and you're like, hey, I'm a groundhog hunter. You got any groundhogs in the shooting? Oh, I wish you would now, right? That's how they are. Like, oh, yeah, I got one over there. The bull stepped in the hole, broke his leg yesterday. And they hate them. So you shoot groundhogs. Well, they get to see that you're a stand-up guy. You don't shoot their cows. You don't leave garbage around. You're not pissed drunk. You go out. You shoot the groundhogs. You pick the groundhogs up. You thank them. And you say, I'll be back around next week again. If you see any, I'll stop by. Tell me where they are. Shoot them. You do that for a summer. You take three or four groundhogs out for them. And then you say toward the end of the year, like dove season's next month. Can I hunt here? Oh, hell, of course you can. So that's that was a means to an end. We got to go out and shoot. And we got places to hunt. And they would tell you, too, oh, you've got to come for deer season. This is a great deer. He's right over there. Like, you know, guys who would never let you hunt all of a sudden are, like, telling you where to hunt on their property. But at the same time, I'm killing these animals. And even as a kid, this always sat wrong. Like, if you're going to kill something, 
then if there's any meaningful value to what you've killed, you should use it. So one day I'm thinking, I wonder if I should eat these. And my uncle's just mocking me. And I'm like, no, I... So I took like three of them home. And to this day, if I'm going to eat one, this is what I do. I hung them up like a deer, you know, back legs. They're pretty big animals. And I skinned them down around the legs and like what would be the rump roast on a deer, down to about the ribs. And I took my knife and I went down what would be your back straps uh, from like not including the ribs, like below the ribs, like that piece down there, and took back up like a lot, instead of the back quarter, think two quarters, think of like the back half. So you got two legs and you got the what would be the rump roast on a deer and the chops on a deer, and you pull that off, and that way you don't even have to open the chest cavity. And we had this bird dog that would eat anything. We'd just throw the top into him and he'd chew on it for days. And you end up with like basically the hams and the rump and the back strap. And I split that in half to two pieces. And I'm like, I'm not really sure what to do with this. I trimmed the fat off it. It wasn't that bad. It didn't have a lot of tallow on it. And so I'm telling my grandma, she goes, well, put it in a pressure cooker. And, of course, her meaning was to put it in a pressure cooker and, like, you know, pressure cook the brains out of it till it was there's nothing left of it till it's a paste because that's how she did things. And uh, But I thought right away, wait a minute. Not half bad an idea. So what I did is I took the leg quarters And I put, figured, you know, let's let's go ahead and get some of the the, the blood and whatnot out. So I did a basic salt brine, not a real heavy salt, like a, like a brine you would do if you were going to do a pig roast, right? If you're going to do, a, um, you know, a pork shoulder, you might brine a pork shoulder like a brine like that, you know, salt and sugar brine. Put it in the refrigerator overnight. The next day, I put it in the pressure cooker at like 10 pounds for like 10 minutes. It's not even fully done, but it's broken down those really tough fibers and muscles. And I, I put it on the, 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 the grill, and I, I cooked it like I would cook, like a pork shoulder. It tasted like a pork shoulder. It was fantastic. And every single member of the family, ah, there's no way they're any good. And they're watching me eat it, and you know, they, eh, and they try one piece. Oh, those are good. Now, nobody wanted to do the work. Nobody wanted to cook it. Nobody wanted to clean them because they were a pain in the ass to clean. But whenever I cooked it after that, there was nobody that wouldn't eat it. And, and it's, it's just fantastic. And it, it goes to show you that a lot of animals that have a bad rap, this is what gets me. You tell people something, they go, oh, they're terrible. Well, have you ever eaten one? Well, no. Well, why not? Everybody knows they suck. Do you know anybody that ate it? Yeah. Who? This guy that knows a guy that knows a guy, you know, your father's cousin's uncle's former roommate, like from Spaceballs. No, you don't. You know somebody that says they know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that says they know somebody, which means you don't know shit. A perfect example of the southern groundhog, ocean catfish, sea catfish, saltwater catfish. Oh, they're terrible. Okay, let me ask you a question. Just think about this rationally for a second. If channel catfish and blue catfish and flathead catfish are good eating, and we know they are, what possible reason would there be that a saltwater catfish would be bad? What logical explanation would they Catfish are good, but not saltwater ones. I'm telling you, everybody I've made saltwater catfish for loves it. Fillet those suckers up, man. Hardheads or gaff top cell, they're fantastic. They live in the ocean. They certainly live generally put... Now, I'm sure you can find some shitty place to get some. But generally, they live in much cleaner water than catfish we eat all the time. They're predators... There's not enough detritus and dead shit laying around in the ocean for the size of the schools of those things that run around. 
they eat thread thin, thread thin herring and, and, and you know what have you like that. They'll, sure, they'll eat a piece of shrimp off the bottom, but they're predators. Fantastic. But everybody knows they're bad, so they're bad. They're not. Go on YouTube and search for catch and cook saltwater catfish. You'll find 20 or 30, because that's a big thing now with anglers. Catch and cook this, catch and cook that, and, and testing all these theories. And every single one that you find that eats saltwater catfish will tell you how good it is. I'm telling you the groundhog is like the little pig of the saltwater catfish world. It is fantastic. Uh, next up, some I really like to make, and I don't make it from hunting very much anymore, but I make it here with coal animals. Soup out of either duck or goose. And the broth that you get off of either duck or goose is just fantastic. So when I'm making duck and goose soup, I'm seldom taking a whole duck or a whole goose to make uh, a soup out of. Though at times I'll do that. When I call or have an injured uh, laying duck, there's so little meat on them. They're just generally not usually worth um, processing as a normal duck. And if I'm not going to do three or four, I'm not getting enough meat to even make it worth doing duck sausage. So with those, I'll just do um, straight duck soup at them because they're so good. Usually it's, you know, you've taken the breasts off and you've done the breasts as, you know, a, a pan-fried duck breast. You've taken the back leg quarters off and maybe done confit with them. And you've got the core and maybe the, you know, the leftover bones from the leg quarters if you've eaten it already. And now you have this basically almost a waste product that we don't want to waste. So what I'll do is I'll take that, I'll throw that in the oven, and I'll run it on convection roast at about 400 degrees until it's brown. I'm not looking for any level of cook. I just want a brown color to it. And then that all goes into a, socks, uh, a, a, a stock pot. And what I'll usually do with that is I'll put it in one of the soup socks that I've featured as an item of the day before because you get all these little tiny pieces of bones. They're such a pain in the ass. And if you don't have a soup sock, what you could do is take like a colander, uh, like you, you strain spaghetti with, like a metal colander like that, set it in there and set that in your, uh, your stock pot. Though I think the soup socks are so cheap, it's so easy. You, know, you tie a knot in the end of it and throw it in there. And, and you slow simmer it. Until you've just you're making basically a bone stock and a broth at the same time, until you've separated everything from it that you can get. And the only thing that I've seasoned with at this point is salt. I've just simmered the duck with what was ever residual on it with some salt and water at this point, and then we'll pull that stuff out of there. Either the soup sock or the colander or pan with holes in it or whatever comes out and. Then we want to do is simmer it a little bit more, and any impurities that are on the top, like any foaming, things like that, you can do this while it's got the sock in it too. Just kind of spoon that off, just a little spoon, and just take that off. You'll end up with this really rich, clear, beautiful stock. Now, if there's not a lot of meat on the carcass, maybe you have a couple of ducks, you've taken almost all the meat off, and you've just made bone stock, that stock can be used for anything. But assuming there is some meat, usually like the wings, you know, I don't bother with those. Uh, there'll be some meat left on the breast. There'll be some like on the back that you can pick off. So you, you know, I usually try to do like two ducks at a time when I do this, or at least one goose or what have you, or Muscovia, big Muscovia. This is great to do with them. And you pick all those little bits of meat off and put it back in. And then you know, a very classic is just carrots and celery and, and like a big handful of fresh parsley, some rosemary and thyme, and just simmer that until the carrots and celery are soft. And that's fantastic, but there's so much you can, there's so much diversity here now. Here's another option: take and cube up some white potato, 
and put that in there and let that simmer in there and let that potato as it's cooking absorb the duck broth and then have that soup with potatoes. A wild rice and white rice mixture is fantastic in that. And you just take it any direction you want. Um, a little bit of uh, lemon zest and some mushrooms and go the mushroom direction with it. It's just, it, it's unlimited what you can do with it. As a... A flavoring agent, that duck stock is awesome. Uh, one of the grains we eat from time to time, you know, I don't eat a lot of potatoes and things like that, but we occasionally. Um, but one of the things that we'll eat more often than anything else other than rice is uh, amaranth or quinoa. If you use duck stock, when you make amaranth or quinoa, it's a whole different level. It's just amazing. It, it, it absolutely is. So duck soup. Uh, and then this is one of my, I believe, truly one of my unique creations. I call them uh, wild hog jalapeno pops, I guess is the word we came up from initially. And I guess they're more actually medallions. So what I'll do, and this is a place where you can use domestic pig for this, but generally a pork loin is too big. But a pork tenderloin, if you cut the tapered parts off the ends and use the center, will be about the size of a loin from a good-sized wild feral hog. And you take that backstrap off the pig, And you cut it about one inch thick to one and a quarter inch thick chops. So remember I said when I do a deer loin, I don't do that. In this case, you do do that. And you take a knife, kind of a small knife, and put a hole through it long ways. So you, when you have a chop, it's like an oval. So the long way through the oval, push the knife all the way through. And then, you know... You can turn the knife. You got to be careful. You don't want to cut through the meat. So if it's if it's a, they're smaller, you might use the smallest knife you can get. And you might take something like a knife sharpener is a great tool to use for this. It's nice and round and thick like your finger, but it's rigid and push it through there and kind of open that hole up. And take a slice, depending on the size of your jalapeno, a quarter to a half of a jalapeno pepper. And if they're really little ones, you might put one in from each side. But you're going to basically fill that whole hole with jalapeno pepper. And then you're going to take bacon and wrap it up. Well, actually, salt and pepper, what other seasonings you want on it. And then wrap that up with bacon and then season the outside of the bacon, too. And then just grill that. And I like to make kind of like a sticky, spicy, Asian-themed barbecue sauce when I do mine. And this is one of those things where it's very hard for me to tell you exactly what to do. But I'll use like... I'll use like a little bit of mirin, which is a sweetened sake, uh, a little bit of mustard, a little bit of a hot sauce, some red chili flake, um, usually some cumin, some paprika, and some chili powder. And I, again, this is I'm, I'm going to finish up with this on, on sauces and seasonings, marinades. I, I, I don't have like these go-to recipes for stuff like that. That day that I'm cooking, I open up the spice cabinet, I look at my sauces and my spices and I and you know I'll, I'll use things like with my Asian cooking I'll use things like uh, fermented bean paste uh, gochujang which is a, a Korean fermented chili paste uh, I'll use mirin I'll use all different types of stuff and I have all this stuff and I don't necessarily say well this goes with this I'll say on that day kind of what I want to grab but like a, a, a spicy Asian type barbecue on that and a lot of times what you do with that is you make a marinade kind of out of the same thing you're going to make your sauce out of, but it's thinner. And you soak your chops in that before you wrap them with bacon. And then you use just a dry 
mix on the outside and on the bacon of some seasonings of whatever you want. And you cook that. And then you make a sauce that has the hot sauce and maybe some gochujang's real good. That gochujang's real good for this. Again, this is just fermented Korean chili paste. And you make that marinade up, a little bit of fish sauce in there, and then you, you brush those at the very end with it, because otherwise there's sugar in it, and it's going to burn, it's going to blacken. So we cook it till that bacon is starting to crisp, and then we just hit it with that. We take those off, we've got to let those rest. And that jalapeno infuses all the way through the pork, and then the bacon back the other way, and then the hotness. And you hit that with a little bit of um, uh, toasted sesame seeds, it'll stick to that kind of sticky sauce at the end. It's something that if it was in a restaurant, you know, it'd be on a $25 plate, like two or three of those with a little side of this and that and some artistic chef creative presentation. And also that's 25 bucks where you can make a hundred of them, you know, off of uh, one or two big pigs. And like I said, you can do that with domestic pork, but you're better off using a tenderloin because if you use pork loin, the chops on a domestic pig are so big. They're just too big for that use. You have that nice little, you kind of want something that like, it's two or three bites and it's gone. If you're, if you're thinking about it like it's a finger food, picking it up and eating it like a popper. I've never done it with cheese. Don't think it's necessary, but it probably wouldn't be bad. <laughs> anyway, that kind of wraps it up. A little bit on the sauce and seasonings and marinades. I think like the best thing you can do when it comes to that is to learn the different ethnic foods. And the different components to them. So how to make a marinade that, that more tends toward the Southwest or uh, Mexican style. How to make a marinade that is more toward like a French style. More of a, a Greek thing. More of an Asian thing. And then you have that kind of diversity and depth. And then you can, when you're making something, go, well, even if I'm going to make, you know, Jack's Bacon pork medallions, like... Where do I want to take the flavor profile? Do I want to take it Asian? Or since there's a jalapeno in there, do I want to take a little Southwestern flair and go with some cumin and some cilantro and uh, some lime? Because, you know, that works too. A little garlic. You can take it any direction you want. Garlic, I put garlic in everything. Don't get too worried about, like, this dish goes with this sauce or this marinade or this baste. Learn to make lots of great marinades and base, and then you can make the same dish with a totally different experience four or five different ways. It's kind of my advice on that. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is uh, always a fun topic for me, and now I'm hungry, and we have steak out from down the road, and we have ground beef out from down the road, and I want to make steak now because I'm thinking about all this great meat. The wife wants uh, hamburgers tonight because we ain't had a good burger in a while, so you know what it's going to be. It's going to be what she wants. I don't say that facetiously. It's just, you know, happy wife, happy life, that type of thing. I always put my wife first. So uh, we'll be making burgers tonight, and I'll be making some, uh, I think she's got some uh, T-bones out from the steer we bought down the road for tomorrow. And uh try to make some deer meat this weekend before I get away. I have to dig into the freezer and see what's left in there. Maybe uh, whatever's left, if there's any big cuts in there, maybe I'll, I'll do up some uh, venison biltong and have little bits of it to hand out at the workshop uh, coming up November. want to remind you of that, okay? The TSP Fall Workshop at Nine Mile Farm. The deposits go on availability on Thursday. Today is Tuesday. That's only two days away. You want to reserve your spot fast because if you don't, you're not going to get to come. These things always sell out, and you have to be an MSB member on 9 a.m. Central at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time on Thursday. I will put the link in the MSB. 
And I will post and say, it's there now. Go into the MSB, log in. It'll be in big, giant red letters right at the top of the page you get onto when you log in. You can't miss it. Click the link and sign up. And I'm going to tell you, with the fall ones, spring, you get a week. Fall, generally, you're lucky if you get a full day. Sometimes you get a full day. Sometimes you don't. Don't bet on it if you want to come. I'm hearing from people already. I want to make sure I get a spot. I'm like, I, I can't cheat for you. you got to play the game like everybody else. It's the only way to be fair. So come, and we'll be having some of this wonderful food that I cook among some other really great things at the workshop. On that, if you like the show and the work that I do, you want to support me, easiest way in the world, you know what it is. Go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Whenever you shop online, specifically when you're going to shop on Amazon, and if you go to tspaz.com first and click a link there, no matter what you buy, you help support the show. I also have... All of our past reviews uh, in chronological order there at T-SPAS. And today I have one. We talked a lot about fishing. My favorite overall fishing reel value for the money, the Mitchell 300. Uh, it is a great fishing reel. Um, the only thing close to it was the Garcia SX40, and I don't even think it's available anymore from what I saw today. Um, but the Mitchell 300, I'm telling you, it's not the same reel it was, but we've been fishing in the Spearco family with Mitchell 300 since the 1960s. Like, if you go on eBay and you Google, like, French-made, because they originally were from France, French-made Mitchell 300, you'll find these old black, they were all black reels uh, that were made in the 50s and 60s, and though I still have some of them. In fact, I've, I've taken, I kind of watch eBay, and when I find one in really good shape, I buy it. I, I consider someday they'll be collector's items or something, and I just like rebuilding them because they're really easy to rebuild. But as far as their new reels... For the type of reel you're talking about, best value. For, I'm not saying the best reel on the market, best value for the money on the market. Uh, the perfect size reel, you know, that, that 30 size, 300 size, depending on the manufacturer, you know, for that medium to medium light action rod, uh, you know, running line anywhere from like 8 to 14 pounds, just fantastic. And they're just, again, something that I have incredible faith in because of how long my family's been using them. If you think 1960 up to present day, the Spirico family's been using Mitchell 300 reels for, what is it, 57 years? That's, that's a hell of a, that's longer than I've been alive. Alright, 57 years we've been using Mitchell 300 spinning reels, and, uh, That's why they're my item of the day as an encore item again today. Check it out, the Mitchell 300. And again, you can always support our show by doing your shopping uh, for anything online through tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, you support us. And it doesn't cost you any extra money. It only takes you a couple extra seconds to do it. And if you spend a couple hours a day with us learning all this stuff, it's an easy way to help you know support the work that we do. Uh, next up, YouTuber of the day. Um, This guy, I just found him myself. I've been working off this list of referrals. You guys refer to tons of uh, YouTube channels to me, but today I was I was just kind of watching YouTube, and I found this guy, and I really like him. He's a Brit. His name is Scott Ree, and his uh, podcast or his uh, YouTube channel is the Scott Ree Project, and uh, he's perfect for today's show. Big time into meats, uh, lots of experience professionally as a butcher and a fishmonger. And uh, I'll let him tell you about his channel right now, but I'm just going to tell you I thought it was fantastic. Hello there. Welcome to the Scott Reed Project. Nice to have you on board. This is a quick video to tell you a little bit about what we do on my channel. 
The Scott Reed Project is all about the butchery and cookery of all meat, fish and game. My mission is to show people not only where their meat comes from, how it's processed and how we get it onto the plate, but I also cook some great recipes as well, which are simple to make and delicious. I am a butcher of 28 years. You can see a couple of my certificates behind me and also a fishmonger of six. So I have a lot of practical knowledge I can share with you guys out there. I am also a keen self-taught amateur cook and I am a cook, I'm not a chef, I'm a home cook and what I like to do is to demystify and simplify those classic dishes so they're actually doable in your own kitchen on a conventional oven. You know, I am a self-confessed cookbook junkie myself, I love TV programmes but my mission is to make these dishes doable. With my vast butchery experience, it allows me to show you very detailed butchery masterclasses, anything from whole cows to quails and everything in between. And I also like to take you back in time and show you some of those traditional old school butchery preparations. You know, some of these dishes that I cook and make, you know, are going to be lost forever. Hence, I've archived them on this channel for you guys to enjoy and hopefully have a go yourself. So on the Scott Reed project then, I not only show you how to prepare your chosen animal, be it a cow, pig, lamb, pheasant, rabbit, on and on and on, but I show you how to cook them as well. So please join me for this ride. You're gonna be in very good company. There's a great community on this channel. So please subscribe to my channel. New videos released every week, like them, share them with your friend, find me on social media, obviously on Facebook and on Twitter, if you look up there, at the Scott Reed Project, how cool is that, and you can watch me wield these bad boys. Join me for the ride. Hey, just to give you an idea a little bit more after what he said, some of the stuff that's on his channel I'm looking at right now, how to butcher a pig, the ultimate in pig butchery, how to prepare and cook a rabbit, um, mini rabbit porchetta. Uh, how to prepare and cook a Xander. What's a Xander? I'm not sure. It looks an awful lot like a walleye to me, but it, uh, probably a saltwater fish. How to butcher a cow. How to tie a butcher's knot and make professionally tied roasts. How to butcher a lamb. How to butcher a pig. How to prepare and cook a hare. Uh, just all kinds of really great stuff. How to skin and truss a pheasant. Uh, lots of game, really cool channel, and guy really looks like he knows what he's doing. He's got a video on how to butcher a deer, and all i got to say is I don't know where he got this deer. It's a pretty damn small deer, uh, but he does a damn good job with it, and uh, I think you can learn a lot from him. I think you'll enjoy his channel again. It's called The Scott Ree Project, and there's a link in today's show notes. That brings me to our song of the day. Our song of the day is by the Charlie Daniels Band. Now, I loved the Charlie Daniels band when I was a kid. I plumb wore out Devil Went to, Down to Georgia on an LP to where I had to, go, I had to go buy. It was my mom's record. I had to go buy a new one because I wore out that song, playing it over and over and over again. Uh, that's not the song that we're going to be listening to today. Charlie Daniels was one of the first people I ever saw in concert. I think the very first concert I saw was uh, Lee Greenwood uh, back in the late 70s. Uh, but I saw Charlie Daniels, I think it was the second concert I ever went to as a kid. And I think I've seen Charlie Daniels play live a good double digits, like 10, 11, 12 times. The most recent time was about five years ago, which is well into this man's career, by the way. 
um, at the Hot Springs uh, Balloon Festival, and they he ain't missed a beat. I mean, this guy was—I don't know where he is today, five years from now, you know, five years ago. But the, when I saw him play five years ago, he was still playing his ass off. And how much do I like Charlie Daniels? Well, I got a dog laying here at my feet right now, and I'm petting with my foot while I talk to you. Most of you know his name is Charlie. I don't know if all of you know this. This this dog's name is Charlie Daniels Spearco, and uh, we call him Daniels all the time. We'll say, "Hey, Daniels, what's up?" And he knows we're talking to him. He knows both his names, his first and his middle name. So I named my dog Charlie Daniels. So you might imagine when when John Adams sent this one, I saw Charlie Daniels. I'm like, okay, we'll play that. That's no problem. And it's one of my favorite songs by the Charlie Daniels band, and it is called "Long Haired Country Boy." And I've always felt, you know, this song could be like a libertarian anthem. And I wondered if they had anything about it on Song Facts, and I checked, and it turns out that they do. And here's what Charlie Daniels says about this song when, uh, you know, when he wrote it and originally released this all the way back in 1975. By the way. It wasn't necessarily from personal experience that Daniels wrote this song, rather from the general way he was feeling at the time. Daniels said the song's message is tolerance. If you don't like me, we don't need to have any trouble. We don't need to be going upside each other's head or anything. Just leave me alone. Just walk around me. Maybe you don't like the way my hair looks. Maybe you don't like the way I eat my soup or whatever it is that you don't like about me. It just doesn't make any difference to me. I don't care. If you don't like me, it's okay. Maybe I don't like you either, but I'm not going to bother you. Just walk around me, go to the other side of the street, or I go to the other side of the street. Let's coexist. There's no need to have problems. You may mentally or intellectually disagree with people, but you don't have to be nasty about it. You certainly don't have to be physical about it. So if you don't like me, it's okay. Just leave me alone. And that's what the song is all about. Well, I feel vindicated in saying it could be a libertarian anthem. I would like to point this out to you guys, though, and I don't want to bend anybody's nose the wrong way, but it's me, so you know sooner or later I'm going to, even on a cooking show. It amazes me how much people that tend to love country music, people from the South, conservative Christian, whatever, that would listen to a song and love this song, and say, absolutely, just leave me, if you don't like the way I'm living, just leave this long-haired country boy alone. Notice I didn't ask you to join me. Notice I didn't ask you to agree with me. I just, just, hey, if you don't like the way I'm living, since I'm not hurting anybody and I'm not asking for anything from anybody, just let me be. Let me be the way that I want to be and you go be the way that you want to be. And yet these are the same people that for years fought against things like gay marriage. Think about the inconsistency. If you don't like the way they're leaving, just leave them alone. No one asked you to be part of it. And I know people will bring up, there was a cake maker. These are rare instances. This is not what the, that's, that's the micro versus the macro of the issue. And how many other things? The song mentions drugs. It's interesting what he says about drugs in this song, too. This is what Charlie says about drugs in this song. Uh, Charlie felt it was inappropriate to play this song during live shows when things got really serious about drugs. He said, things have gotten so serious, it's such a big problem with drugs and alcohol with kids, and it just went against my Christian feelings to actually do anything that somebody could construe at, with promoting that lifestyle or those things, the alcohol and drugs. It wasn't until many years later that he decided to change some of the words so he felt he could begin playing it at his live shows again. The song was much a big part of his repertoire and was always just a popular song for us to do. And people kept wanting it, so I changed I Get Stoned in the Morning 
and I get drunk in the afternoon till I get up in the morning and I get down in the afternoon, which means the same thing. I wish you had done that to start with. Well, Charlie, I hate to break it to you, but five years ago when I was at the Hot Springs Balloon Festival and you were playing that song, you might have been singing I get I get up in the morning and I get down in the afternoon, but there was about 5,000 Arkansas, Arkansanians, what do you call Arkansas's? Arkansas people, right? Arkansas, what the, I lived there for all those years, and I don't even know what you call it. There's a word for it. I don't, whatever. There was there was about five thousand people from Arkansas singing real loud. I get stoned in the morning and I get drunk in the afternoon. It didn't bother them. They didn't care. And I think the bigger thing about this song, though, when you look at the drug issue, is so Charlie wasn't saying he was the guy getting stoned. The character he created in the song was the guy getting stoned. Leave him alone. As long as you're not bothering anybody. Kind of like my old blue tick hound, I just like to lay around in the shade. I ain't got much money, but I damn sure got it made. And I think that's how we could all feel if we could all be just left alone to live the life that we want. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. People say I'm no good and crazy as a loon Cause I get stoned in the morning and I get drunk in the afternoon Kinda like my old blue tick hound, I like to lay around in the shade And I ain't got no money, but I damn sure got it made Cause I ain't asking nobody for nothing If I can't get it on my own If you don't like the way I'm living You just leave this long-haired country boy alone Preacher man talking on Send a donation Cause he's worried about my soul He said Jesus walked on the water And I know that it's true But sometimes I think that preacher man I'd like to do a little walking too But I ain't asking nobody for nothing If I can't get it on
Long-haired country boy, long. 